Welcome to episode 58 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. And on today's show, we have two very special guests with us. David Fogel, author of Blondie 24, playing at the edge of AI. And Sebastian Arno, who we interviewed a few shows back about Swarm. So Jason, today's show is chock-a-block full of brains. How do we meet them all? Okay, well, you know, we've, we've met... Sebastian, um, was it about four or five episodes ago when you were on Sebastian? Is that right? 51. Yes. And in which we spent most of the show talking about the development of the Swarm AI. Um, And David is the author of a book, uh, Blondie 24, which I read probably six, eight years ago, um, which I found fascinating and really shaped um, my perspective on what can be done with uh, machine learning. And I've brought it up probably three or four times over the past year in various uh, podcasts. Um, so I thought it would be really uh, awesome if we could actually talk to the man himself um, who actually built a world-class checkers playing algorithm, actually I should say evolved one from scratch without any expert knowledge. Because if there's anyone who might have any inter- interesting take or any deep insight into what can be done with sw- the Swarm API, it would be uh, David Fogel. So... That's uh, that's how I initially um, uh, found uh, found out about David just through reading his book, and uh, we were just really lucky that he agreed to come on the podcast. So, David, thank you so much for agreeing to uh, come on. Yeah, very very much, and we're, we're clearly we're talking to the best, so that's fantastic. Well, I appreciate that. It's my pleasure to be here. So, David, if you could, for our listeners, uh, tell us a little bit about um, your background in the um, field of machine learning and maybe uh, also give us a little bit of background on what Blondie24 is and uh, about um, how you got into that whole project. Sure. Well, my, my background in machine learning extends probably back to 1981. 1980, 1981 or so, when uh, my father, Larry, who was one of the pioneers in simulating evolution on computers, um, he had the idea in 1960 when he was uh, on station at the National Science Foundation uh, to actually do artificial intelligence by evolving finite state machines that would make predictions about different environments and then seeing which ones did better at doing those predictions and keeping the ones that did better and discarding the ones that did worse, adding some random variation to the ones that do better. And that generates a now very familiar process of, of evolution on a computer, but it wasn't so familiar back in the 1960s. But um, but my dad and I had an opportunity to travel to the Air Force Academy where I had been accepted um, to go to, to college. I wanted to be a jet fighter pilot. And he wisely said, you know, we should we should go visit this place before you sign up for four years or, you know, ten years, whatever it's going to be. Right. So we went out there and I found out that uh, – there were a lot of rules that I just didn't really understand as a as a young kid um, about having to like you know as a as a freshman walk around a building three times before you could go in the front door when the upper class guy could just walk in the front door. I'm like, what is that all about? Right. And um, by the time I got done with uh, all those rules, I decided maybe this wasn't the right place for me. So I remember we were waiting at the Colorado Springs uh, airport, and my dad looked at me and said, "Okay, David, so how would you design a fly?" And I'm like, what do you, you know, that's kind of a crazy thing to, to ask me. But you know, my dad, my dad asked me crazy things like right. that from time to time. And so I like, so, you know, I guess there's a trade off between different things about how big he is and how much he needs to eat and how heavy he is to get off the ground and what's his wing size and how fast can they flap and how big are his feet and how, you know, does he need to walk upside down or what, you know, all these different things that you think about. And you, when you start thinking about what a fly has to do besides reproduce. And so he's, then he went through a thing. Well, you know, maybe we could 
write the computer program that would simulate that. And he took me through the idea of that. Of course, he'd done all this sort of stuff, you know, for many years already. Right. Um, and how could you not find that fascinating in and of itself? And, of course, I found it even more fascinating because my dad was the one who was telling me about it. So... About three years later, uh, a company that he had was bought out by another company called Titan Systems, a defense contractor, and I had an opportunity to start working with my dad as an intern as I finished up my bachelor's degree in statistics from UC Santa Barbara. And uh, my dad then won an evolutionary programming research contract from the Army, and I was the only one available to do the programming on it, so I ended up working with him on that project and then ended up working with him for the rest of his life. He passed away in 2007. Um, and basically have been doing full-time computational intelligence, machine learning, you know, ever since the mid-1980s. So I was just very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time with the right genetic background and a, and a dad who, uh, who had this idea way ahead of its uh, time. I mean, you have to think when, the, when, when he thought of doing this and a few other people thought of doing it also independently, basically nobody really knew what the others were doing at that time. Um, computers were twice as big as the desk that I'm at right now, maybe four times as big as the desk that I'm at right now, and half the speed of an Apple II, if we remember what an Apple II was like. So, you know, know, we think about evolving, you know, a thousand different solutions to a problem, and and that's no big deal on a computer today, but back then, you know, evolving three solutions to a problem was a big deal, and you had to put a lot of thought into what experiments you wanted to run. These days, you kind of just can try something and see if it works, and if it doesn't work, try something else, which I think there's good and bad to that. We can talk about that separately if you want, but anyway, that's how I got into machine learning. So you, and then after your bachelor's degree, you went back and, and got a PhD in... I did, yeah. I have a master's degree in, in engineering and a PhD in engineering from UC San Diego, uh, both emphasizing system science, so making models of things. Um, and my, my dissertation was, of course, on evolving artificial intelligence. Had very good luck at, uh, at UCSD with my graduate advisor, Tony Seabald. He was a tremendous advisor for me um, because he pretty much let me do what I wanted to do, except when I was really you know, off the path and he would help me get back on the path, but, uh, but pretty much gave me the freedom to do what I wanted to do. And uh, I certainly benefited from that. Now, this was, uh, what years were you uh, in your PhD program? I finished in 1992, so from 1988 to 92, I was there for the master's and PhD. Now, wasn't that sort of during the AI cold winter in the 80s? Because there was a, there was a, a bunch of hype about what AI could do and like a, a, lot of, a lot to do with like expert systems and knowledge engineering, and then things didn't pan out, at least as, at least as according to the hype. And then there was sort of this, uh, you know, this nuclear winter where things were kind of dead. I mean, was that right. the case? Am, am you I know, right? It's funny. It's so funny that you say that because I, I picture it sort of as like, you remember the old biorhythms thing where you had, I forget what the three curves were, but, you know, they all go in these sine waves that go in and out of phase. And, right. and it's, it was sort of like you had the expert system knowledge-based thing that had ridden a wave, but then was, was sort of crashing into the mid-80s. But then neural networks, which had definitely crashed after Minsky's and uh, Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papp, Perceptron's book in the late 1960s. They were just starting to come back in the late 1980s, and evolution was just sort of coming back into the, the mid-1990s. So, you know, there, I think there were various nuclear winners that went along different forms of AI, and, and all mostly, you know, self-driven by claims that couldn't be substantiated in the end. But, right. um, but of course, you know, 
in the end, the things that that work tend to tend to remain, and tend, people tend to use them. So, um, I've always been very focused on the practicalities of engineering and applying these sorts of techniques to solving problems where they're appropriate, and not using them when they're not appropriate. Um, Although I will say the Blondie 24 uh, experiment was simply for the matter of doing to see whether or not something could be done as opposed to engineering some particular uh, result. And we can talk a little bit more about Blondie 24 checkers and, and what we did with, uh, with chess as well. But yeah. um, for, the, for the main part, I would say most of my uh, practical problem solving has been on things that are nonlinear systems with... Um, objectives that people can't easily write for typical statistical methods, which would involve squared error functions and things like that. The, you know, the more wrong you are, the square of the error gets applied. And, and it's very easy to do the mathematics for those sorts of things, but oftentimes in engineering, the actual result you care about doesn't really match up with that squared error function, and, and that's where evolution and other sorts of computational intelligence techniques offer flexibility that the standard statistical approaches don't. So when um, before we get to the Blondie 24, which I'd like to hear some more about that story because I think our listeners would find it fascinating. Um, you know, you talk about the time that neural nets were starting to come back in the in the 80s, uh, mm -hmm. and, and evolutionary computation was starting to pick up some ground. Now, the com combining the the two. Now, that must have been pretty novel at the time. Um, was that something that, were you one of the early pioneers in it, or was it something that other people were doing that you thought was promising and decide, you, know, you just decided to apply it to the checkers problem, or how did that all come together for you? Well, in, in about 1989, I started working at a company, actually late 1988, a company called Orincon, back here in San Diego, and they were funded by DARPA to do some neural net uh, work on trying to figure out what was going on under the ocean. And beyond that, I probably can't talk about it. But right. you can imagine what things go on under the ocean and what you might be interested in figuring out, you know, what was this and what was that. And neural networks offered an opportunity to go beyond the, the usual statistical approaches to doing that sort of problem. And having had a background in evolution up to that point, you know, probably working on it about four years full-time, um, it was a very natural thing to think about, well, how do we go about finding the weights to a neural net? Because the typical approach was a calculus-based approach, basically backpropagation. I presume everybody listening will be familiar with that. But basically, if you think about a multidimensional landscape, you're trying to find the minimum error point on that landscape, and the landscape can look like anything. It can look like the Rocky Mountains or the Grand Canyon, or it doesn't have to look like a nice peak or a valley. And so calculus methods have a tendency to get stuck at nooks and crannies along the way, and oftentimes that can mean that you have to have a neural net that's uh, bigger than you might like it to be for the particular problem. And that has another problem, which then means you can overfit the noise that are in the available data and end up with a neural net that doesn't generalize as well as you might like it to. So it was um, quite natural for me to think about applying an evolutionary approach to optimizing that neural net. Also, I, I, I was able to see the parallel between doing that and evolving autoregressive moving average type models that I would have had in my system identification courses at, at grad school, you know, where you have inputs and outputs and you want to say, well, what's the, what's the model that transforms those inputs into the outputs? And you really don't know what it is, so you make some assumptions about what it could be and then try to optimize that model again. But you have all the same, all the same issues about calculus-based methods getting stuck at solutions that, you know, are, are maybe good enough but maybe not good enough. Turns out there were some other people using genetic algorithms as opposed to evolutionary programming um, and the difference being at that point in time basically evolutionary programming was a lot more mutation based with continuous variation of, of parameters as opposed to 
a genetic algorithm which was much more binary string based with crossing over different solutions as being the important variation operators. Mm -hmm. uh, many years later, it was proven actually that across all problems, there's no better solution, you know, no, there's no best solution. So um, you have to kind of tailor what you're doing to the particular problem. But there were some other people about the same time working on it. As it turns out, there's another person, Michael Conrad, who passed away. Uh, in 2000, who had done some very pioneering work on evolving neural nets with his grad students in Detroit um, in 1983. So, didn't know about that. I uh, wish I had. might have saved me a little bit of trouble inventing things from scratch. But um, as is the case with many of these things in the pioneering efforts of evolutionary computation, people publish things and they go away and you don't find them for a long time. And you come up with a good idea and you just try it. So, um, once again, I think it was again being in the right place at the right time so we had a, a, a direct need to try to solve an engineering problem with a technology that was coming to the fore with an experience that I had that I could relate what I was doing from my graduate school work back to this specific problem. So and, and when you started to work on Blondie 24 were you mm -hmm. still in uh, working in your PhD at that time or were you out? No actually no actually it was um, about 1997 okay. and um, in 1993 my dad and I started Natural Selection Incorporated, so we were already on our own with our own business. And, of course, Natural Selection Incorporated still exists. My brother's the CEO now, my brother Gary, whose Ph.D. is in biology. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he runs the company with Bill Porto, who's president. I met Bill back at Orincon in 1988, so I've known, known Gary all of his life, and I've known Bill for a long time, too. But mm -hmm. anyway, um, in, in 1997, as it turns out, I was... Um, working on a project in breast cancer detection using evolutionary neural networks. Um, turns out the Army was funding that because the, the um, politics of the Cold War being won was such that the Congress decided, rather than giving more money to NIH, which is where you might think that breast cancer research should be done, uh, they took Defense Department money that was being allocated for weaponry and other defense systems um, and moved it into medical research. And each of the different branches of the Defense Department can do their own medical research. The Army has uh, a, a medical research group at Fort Detrick, Maryland. And they funded a great deal of breast cancer research. And they also now fund prostate research, prostate cancer research, and other types of cancer. But in any event, we won a, a small grant to work with the, uh, the chief of radiology at Maui Memorial Hospital on the island of Maui. Uh, along with some help from Mike Bowden, who was the head of the Economic Development Board in Maui. And I should mention the chief of radiology was uh, Gene Wasson, medical doctor. Mm -hmm. And so we, we looked at over 200 patients who had suspicious mammograms and evolved neural networks to look at the features that Gene was looking at to see if we could minimize the number of features that he would need to look at in order to be just as accurate in detecting cancer in suspicious cases and not have any more misses than he would have in the same category. And we actually were able to do that with about only 10 to 12 features, even though he would look for many more things than that. Right. But as it turns out, one day, May 11th, um, while he was busy at the hospital and I had nothing else to do, um, I decided to take my rental car and drive around the island, around this dirt section of road on the northwest part of the island where there's the road kind of ends and you're not supposed to drive past that. They say on the rental car agreement, don't do it. And actually, you know, <laughs> They really mean it because at some points there, it's a pretty narrow stretch of dirt road and, and it goes up at like a 20% grade and you just hope no one's coming down the other direction because you really don't want to back down that thing. Um, and at least for me, it wasn't raining at the time. That would have been even worse. But 
But I was listening to the news because it's a long, long drive around the island there. I didn't realize how long it was going to be, and you couldn't get too many radio stations. So I was listening to the news, and at one point, the news actually changed. Gary Kasparov had just lost to Deep Blue. And this is, of course, you know, I mean, as a computer scientist, I think we would all say, well, okay, about time, right? Because you you knew Deep Blue eventually was going to beat Gary. That's just how it goes. But um, the way it was being offered on the news was this is the end of human domination over computers because uh, computers are now smarter than people now that they know how to beat Gary Kasparov in chess. And, of course, I I thought that was just a bunch of, of... bunk, you know, because right. it was, a, I think, a tremendous engineering feat that uh, Murray Campbell and his team at, at uh, IBM put together over many years, and the fact that it took many years is testament to what they were able to accomplish. By the same token, it was designed to beat one guy and beat him really well, and then after it beat him, they dismantled it, and, you know, that's not really kind of how we do science, you know, usually you want a repeatable experiment. And um, if if the rules of chess had been different, if the rules of chess were changed so the kings move two squares and queens move more like knights and so forth, you know, Deep Blue wouldn't have been able to do anything with that. It never would have, have learned how to play that game. And to me, I always felt like intelligence, and I, I, I know I felt this way because my dad did, I always felt that intelligence was an adaptive property of a system, a system that allows, a property allows a system to adapt its behavior to meet the objectives that it has across a range of environments. And so if you think about the intelligence of a, of a calculator, well, it, it, you know, it's none because it just does what it's programmed to do. And I, I kind of view Deep Blue in that same category of a very um, a marvelous engineering feat that's basically as intelligent as a calculator. And I wanted to try to say, well, okay, could we take a computer and let it play against itself using the evolutionary paradigm? And just learn from watching the boards and evaluating how they go, um, how to play chess and how to play it really well. And so I, I had a lot of time to think about that idea because when I got back to the hotel room, um, coincidentally, the first issue of the IEEE Transactions on Evolutionary Computation uh, was just coming out. And the IEEE, for anyone who, who doesn't know, is the world's largest organization of professional engineers. And I had the good fortune of being the founding editor-in-chief of that journal. So the, the first issue was just coming out. I was proofreading the galleys for the fourth time because it desperately didn't want any mistakes to be in that in that issue for any typos and i'm proud to say there's only one typo and it's in my own it's in my own biography <laughs> after all of that right um but yeah i just couldn't i couldn't get this thought about you know this is what i really want to do uh out of my head and so at that point you know you start taking inventory of your of your resources because you know that it took ibm millions of dollars and supercomputers and all this to get to where they were and what do you have well what i had was one 450 megahertz pentium 2 processor running windows nt and i had an eager graduate student friend uh, kumar chalapilla who thought it was also a cool idea and that's it um we didn't have any funding we just had you know our our desire to try to make this happen so we thought okay we better start a little lower than chess on the totem pole of games and so we focused attention on checkers and of course the first thing we did was try to understand what had been done previously in checkers now one of the things that had been done previously is uh, some famous work by arthur samuel one of the pioneers of of artificial intelligence in the 1950s and 60s who used reinforcement learning to uh, essentially evolve but you know back then it's not really evolution it's it's one solution giving rise to another and then adjusting the weights by by reinforcement but 
um, essentially a machine learning method, one of the first applied to the game of checkers. And he actually had some famous results where he, he beat a, a person who was a Connecticut state champion, um, didn't beat him again in the rematch. And some analysis of that first match that uh, his program won actually shows that it's, it's more like the person who was the opponent, Robert Neely, uh, actually made some bad moves and lost the match as opposed to Samuel's program really winning it. Right. Um, and so, you know, the the actual play level of that program, especially given how many ply depth, how many moves ahead that program was able to look, was probably what we would call class B on a scale of um, class A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way down to, you know, class H, like where I am as a checkers player. I'm still terrible as a checkers player. But above class A is expert and master and grandmaster. That's sort of an informal rating category, um, right. not used in professional tournaments and so forth, but... But in any event, you know, class B. So um, if you think about what Samuel's lament was, Samuel's lament was that he had to program in all of the features that his program would look at, and then it would learn the relative weights. But he wanted to have something there. You wouldn't have to program in all of those features by hand, like controlling the center is a good thing, and maybe staying off the sides is a good thing, or avoiding a certain position called the dog hole in a checkerboard, which is one of the squares at the very end on the left-hand side where you kind of get stuck if the other guy doesn't move his checker out of the way for you. And there's all sorts of other patterns. There's a triangle of Oreo, which, I mean, I don't know why it's called a triangle of Oreo, but I never right. never found out. But anyway, all these things that are checkers' knowledge that went into his program, and he wanted to have a way to, to figure out how not to do that and still have a machine uh, learn how to play. About the same time, Alan Newell, also one of the fathers of AI, had been quoted in a review that Marvin Minsky did about the importance of credit assignment in games like chess and checkers. And this was another thing that I had sort of a, a, a bug about doing something about because the standard idea there was that credit assignment is really crucial to game playing. And of course, if you believe it is, then it becomes that way because all of your programs get designed that way. So credit assignment, again, is saying, you know, what move was the good move or the bad move that set me up to win or lose this particular match? And maybe there was, of course, a series of them. And once there's a series of them, it's generally a nonlinear problem of apportioning the credit across all of those moves. And I had the opinion that maybe that's just a, a wrong way to frame it in the first place because if you think about a flush, let's say, in poker or a straight, you know, how much credit do you assign to any one of the five cards? It's not something you can really do because without all of the cards, you don't have anything. Or maybe you have something else. Maybe you have a pair. But, you know, it's hard to say that it is really meaningful to apportion credit in a case where all the things have to work in concert to some level um, in order to, to make your objective. So what I was thinking is instead of doing something with credit assignment, why don't we do something that is completely obverse to credit assignment? So... The thought experiment is we're going to sit down and play a game, and you've never played the game before. In fact, you've never played any game before. You don't even know what a game is. And I say, all right, we're going to, we're going to play this game, and here's how the pieces get laid out. Looks like a checkerboard. You know, yeah, I've got your checkers on each thing, 12 checkers. They move diagonally. If you get to the back row, you can have a king, and it moves any direction you want, one square. Jump moves are forced. Let's play. And you might ask me what the object of the game is, and I would say, well, I'm not going to tell you the object of the game. And so, okay, let's just play. So, you know, that sounds pretty strange, but you might humor me for a game and play. And like 37 moves later, I'm going to tell you, okay, game over, let's play again. And you would naturally say, you know, did I win? Did I lose? Did we play to a draw? What was the outcome? And I'm not going to tell you the outcome. I'm just going to let you think about it. And after some random number of games, I'm going to tell you you got eight points. 
And I will tell you generously that eight points is better than seven points, and it's not as good as nine points. Um, but I'm not going to tell you how many games you played. You don't really have a concept of that anyway. Um, and your thought experiment is to say, okay, how many games like that would I have to play to become really good at this game of checkers? Not having any background about anything else, knowing where the pieces are, what the pieces are, how many I have, let's say what the piece differential is between what I have and what the opponent has. And that's it, basically. You might know um, enough about tree search to be able to extend uh, out into the future to say, if I do this, he can do that, and I'll, I'll give you that much imagination. But beyond that, really not very much in terms of human expertise about the game. And if you think about it, if you're using a neural net to look at a board and take in that sort of information where it even has to evolve the value of a king, it's not going to use some heuristic about piece value, um, it's having to invent all the features like Samuel wanted, and it's definitely not using credit assignment, as Alan Newell said was required, because not only are we not telling it what moves are good, we're not even telling it what games it won, we're not even telling it how many games it played. And so Kumar and I set up and we, we, uh, we wrote this program. Kumar did, I would say, 99% of the programming. Um, I did some of the thinking, certainly, but I give Kumar the credit. He's one of the best programmers I've ever met. And um, so over time, we, we set the thing up and let it run, and we did a few trials of, of one neural net configuration that would take the board and scan it from left to right and top to bottom and, and basically take 15 parent ideas about how to evaluate a board and compete them with 15 offspring ideas of how to play that board, um, you know, every board that it would encounter along the way, and iterate that evolutionary process of random variation and selection, just like horse race breeders do with thoroughbred racehorses. And after a while, we decided to play it, and it beat us pretty easily, but we both agreed we were really no judge for how good this program would actually be, because both of us just think it checkers. Um, so we let it evolve a little bit longer, and we went and found that on Microsoft's a website called zone.com. You could play checkers for free and it had a rating system and so you could actually get some sort of benchmarking about how good the program was. And sure enough, it had, it had learned to be at least as good as Class B or Class A up to that point. And we had one realization which I think was very important which allowed it eventually to become an expert um, which is that if you scan a checkerboard from left to right and top to bottom that you're actually pretending as if it's a one-dimensional game because the neural net just gets to see 32 inputs and it doesn't really know anything about the spatial nearness of those inputs. It's just 32 things. And of course, the way the neural net's configured, if you configure it you know, big enough, and we just try to think of something that would be reasonable, not optimal, um, eventually it should be able to handle that. But we were, um, we were out at lunch one day at Rubio's Fish Tacos place, and uh, at that time they had a little checkerboard design in the table. So we were looking at this thinking, okay, what can we do about this two-dimensional checkerboard thing while we're eating our fish tacos? And we just decided, well, what we should do, it's funny how you get inspiration for things, isn't it? So <laughs> what we should do is have all 3x3, 4x4, 5x5, 6x6, 7x7, and then the entire board be their own sort of inputs to the neural net so that they could at least have a chance to learn that these things are near each other and maybe they're important to group together and maybe they're not. And we didn't know how to do it anyway. And and we wanted, even if we did, we wouldn't have provided that information because the whole point was to see what could this thing learn on its own. And so we, we made that design to the neural net, which we called a spatial neural net. 
Um, I was talking with Paul Werbos at the National Science Foundation about that sort of design as well, and he thought that had been put to good use in other, uh, other applications of image processing. So that was some reassurance that we were on the right track. And we, um, we did a, a very crucial experiment that started in January of 1999, actually. And at the rate that the computer would run, it would take six months to finish. So we hit return, and we went and did other things, and we would go check on the machine and make sure it was still running. I think that the biggest miracle of the whole thing is that Windows NT didn't crash in six months. I mean, it just kept running and running. But eventually oh, wait, we did, got Wasn't it. there something in the book that it did crash at one point, and you guys had to start from scratch or something like that? And then you, you rewrote the program to save state like after every generation? Yes, in, the, in, the fir- in the first case we had, and we had one case where we had a, we had a crash and, and then we, we learned our lesson so that we'd always output every 10 generations and we'd just you know, upload again from there if there were a problem. But in this particular case, it actually ran straight through. Oh. And, um, and then we, we started playing with that program online. And of course, this is where Blondie24 comes in. So it, we... we we had to go and give ourselves uh, a moniker, a name, right, on Zone.com. And so originally we had given ourselves the name David1101 because it had been November 1st and, and I'm David. That's about all the thought that went into that. Um, and nobody really cares about David1101. So it's hard to get people to, to play against you, you know. And we wanted to get enough games where we'd have a statistically valid sample to assess what the rating was. And so we said, okay, we need a name that entices more people. So we picked Obi-Wan the Jedi. And this was about the time that the Star Wars trilogy was coming out again. And it's, you know, the Star Wars Episode One or whatever. And so uh, Obi-Wan was in people's, people's minds. And all of a sudden, we got a lot of people who wanted to play against Obi-Wan the Jedi. And I guess prove that he wasn't quite a Jedi after all. Um, so we would, we would take very meticulous notes about who we were playing. We wanted to play each, each player that we played only once as red and once as white so we wouldn't bias our, our results at all. Um, and the funny thing is that the really good players, whether they're winning or losing, are very gracious. They, if they're winning, they say, oh, I'm sorry, I think you missed that move. And if you happen to beat them, it's like, you know, great game, you're a good player and all that. Um, very sportsmanlike. The, the guys who are at like Class A and Class B actually have very little class <laughs> at all because um, what happens with them is it's all about the rating for them. Their whole life is their checkers rating, it seems. And while we were beating them at times, um, they would be swearing at us in this chat box. I mean, really vile things. I mean, you know, things about my mother, and they don't know my mother. And um, <laughs> And, and Microsoft would take would allow you to take up to four minutes per move at that time. So not only were they swearing at us, but they would take like three minutes and 30 seconds every move. And so you can imagine, you know, if you're up like four checkers on a guy and you think you're going to win 21 moves from now, but you know that you're going to have this verbal abuse for the next hour to get one data point, it's a little, well, it's a little trying at the, at the least. Mm-hmm. And so Kumar and I did a little thought experiment and said, okay, so who are these guys who are swearing at us? And we figured they're not women because women don't swear at you over checkers. They may be over other things, but not, not checkers, right? It's not that <laughs> right. important to women. And, and eventually, if you're an older guy, probably you don't associate your entire reason for living with your checkers rating. You move on to other things. So they must be young guys. So what would mollify a young guy better than a young girl? I mean, that's just ipso facto. Right. So then we say, all right, well, we need, to have a, we need to have a story. So what's her name? And thought, all right, Blondie, you know, she's 24 years old. She's a math major at UCSD, and, you know, she was smart. So that was easy. Then 
you know, we had to think of some other things because we knew people were going to ask. So, you know, she surfs, she skis, she's good looking, she's looking for a boyfriend. How'd she get so good at checkers? Well, she broke her leg skiing and had six months to lay up and teach herself, which is pretty much, again, how long it had, had taken to teach itself. And we went back out online as Blondie24. And the darnest thing, you know, the, the same guys who had just been swearing at my mother are now sending me instant messages faster than I can close them, <laughs> inviting me to come play with them on Table 36, uh, asking me out on dates, asking me what I'm wearing. And I'm like, guys, it's checkers, okay? You know, keep your eye on the ball, man, you know? So, all right. Anyway, we played, uh, we played 165 games by hand without ever telling anybody that we were using a program. And uh, in the end, after 165 games, Blondie's rating was at 2,050, which is in the expert category. It was in the top 500 of 120,000 uh, humans who had registered at that site. So better than 99.5% of all the players at that site. And some interesting things along the way. We did uh, a comparison test against the world-class program called Chinook, which is the best program in the world, and it always will be because Jonathan Schaefer was able to prove that go-as-you-please checkers is a draw, so it'll never lose now. But at the time, he offered uh, an opportunity to play against it at some dumbed-down levels, like a high-level expert or a master. And so we played it against uh, at a high-level expert uh, level, and we won a couple of games. We lost four. We drew four, so that uh, if you do the computations on that, it comes out again to about a 2050 rating. So with an independent uh, metric, we come out with about the same rating. And interestingly, along the way, even though I don't know really much about checkers still, it was very clear that Blondie had captured the idea of mobility. Uh, it would oftentimes try to clamp down on the opponent's available moves until the opponent had no good moves, uh, sort of like a giant boa constrictor snake uh, clamping down on an, on an opponent. And interestingly enough, too, in certain games, we would allow people to kibitz so you can log in and, and click into the room and not be one of the players. You can just watch and, and also type in the chat box as long as both players agree. And so there is one case where I was playing an endgame with somebody else, and the kibitzer said that we were playing a Johnson endgame. And to this date, I don't, I don't know if a Johnson endgame is something reasonable or not. I haven't checked with any Grandmaster Checkers players, but the point is that this guy thought he recognized something similar to human behavior in a program that had simply taught itself how to play without having any of that pre-programmed human behavior. Right. So to me, the beauty of, of the Blondie 24 approach is not so much the engineering result because there are many better checkers programs. And in fact, if you want to make a good checkers program, um, really, I'm going to say all you have to do in quotes because um, certainly in deference to the people who did it, and several people have, you know, this pioneering work to engineer the database structures that have to look at all the possible end games and put in the opening move databases and, and polynomial terms to evaluate different boards and so forth. But that's all you have to do, essentially. I mean, that's a lot of programming work, and, and it takes its own insight and creativity. Um, and you'll get a program which is quite a bit better than Blondie 24 rather quickly because Blondie doesn't use any end games or any opening databases from grandmasters or any of that. That's not the point. Uh, the point is that it was able to start from something that just basically made random moves biased by the piece differential to um, something that was able to beat about 99.5% of people. If you left Blondie running for 
12 months rather than six months, would it then be twice as good? Well, I don't think it would be twice as good in terms of, let's say, where you are on um, a Gaussian distribution of scores, right? Because rating scores, it wouldn't, you wouldn't double your rating score anyway, right? There's a distribution of scores, and I think Kasparov was somewhere out around 2,800 in chess when he, when he retired. So 2,050 to 2,400 is already a huge difference, and then from 2,400 to 2,800 is, again, another huge difference. Um, but to be more specific to your point, I think there's a limit uh, in the learning curve, and here's how it goes. I think in the beginning, um, we've seen when we ran four different experiments in two different structures, both the straightforward neural net and the spatial neural net. We ran each of them for a short amount of generations, like 100 and 250, a longer one, and then another one for like 250 and over 800. Every time we ran it longer, it did play better than when we ran it for fewer generations. However, I think at some point to be uh, competitive at the highest levels of checkers, you really do need to have essentially lookup. And Certainly, a neural net can be a lookup table, but just like it's sometimes hard to get neural nets to do simple things like a sine wave, um, they're not really necessarily built for doing some of those things. To have it, have it be constructed to do a lookup table is an inefficient way of doing a lookup table. And so I think, in principle, you could have it evolve to get better and better and better and better, especially if you were allowing it to change its own topology, change the way the nets construction. Um, in fact, uh, let's say how many nodes were connected to which other ones. Maybe there would be feedback loops. Maybe each node wouldn't be a simple sort of sigmoid partition sort of function, but it could evolve its own nonlinear function, its own nonlinear transform. Um, that would make it a very general purpose sort of computational device. I think it could do it in principle, um, but it might take a very long time to do that with that sort of approach. Now, you, you initially evolved this program. This was back, what, in the late 90s when you first Yeah, 19, 1999 to about, you know, I think our last publication on Blondie would have been about 2002. And then to just complete that part of it, we actually did get some NSF funding after that to work on chess. So Blondie 25 did get going on chess. And we started with a program that was a, a publicly available program that had some heuristics in it for peace um, values for queens and rooks and knights and so forth. It was rated at about 1900, as I recall. Um, and through evolution, we were able to get it up to 2650, which is a grandmaster level program. I have to be careful not to call it a grandmaster because you only get to be a grandmaster in chess if you beat another grandmaster in a sanctioned tournament, which we have not done. Right. But we did play against Fritz 8, which was one of the top five programs in the world at the time. And we did get some wins over Fritz 8. Uh, many more losses than wins. But I like to think about it like if I was a tennis player who taught myself how to play tennis and I somehow got a win over Andy Roddick once in a while, that wouldn't be too bad. So, um, you know, 2650 was the rating that we were able to get and um, had the opportunity to meet for a morning with Gary Kasparov in New York City and talk about all that work we were doing was uh, actually a very exciting project also. Now, uh, now, what happened with the Blondie 25 project? I mean, why did that, why did you guys stop? After why, why did you, why why wasn't it an ongoing effort or something? Well, I think uh, it, the events of applying our technology to other um, problems in entertainment, uh, non-player character evolution, for example, um, and also other things that we've been doing in supporting biotechnology, engineering, and industry, and other defense things, homeland security projects, uh, simply got the better of of our time. So okay. um, by the time we got to 
a, a chess program that basically taught itself, although I will have to say with a lot more head start than we gave Blondie 24, because in Blondie 24, we didn't even tell it how much a king was worth. You know, it had to evolve that on its own. Um, I think we had, and certainly I felt like we had already made the point. And the point I was trying to make is that, yeah, evolution can can learn to invent its own features. It doesn't have to be that you, what you program in is what you get. Essentially, you know, yeah, you're programming in the, the substrate for it, the foundation for it, but it can generate something that you truly did not anticipate, nor could you have anticipated it because you don't know what it is. So I didn't, you know, again, I'm a lousy checkers player and not much better at chess, so you wouldn't want to use me as the domain expert. And, um, and you don't need credit assignment to generate things that are at a very high echelon of performance. And so hopefully that offers the opportunity for others to look at that as a method for generating truly creative solutions to problems where we don't know what the right answers are. And there, there are plenty of those in the real world. Okay. So, you know, I think it might be a good time now to sort of switch over to talking a little bit about Swarm, or maybe we should call it Blondie 26. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yep. uh, so Sebastian has been waiting uh, patiently because I know he's, he has a, a lot of questions, and I'm very curious to hear um, what, it, uh, what you think of, of some of uh, Sebastian's approaches and, and what might be applicable or not to the game of Swarm. So, um, you know, you've, you've had a chance to look over Swarm. I think you watched the video that Justin made the screencast, so you have a basic understanding of how it works. Okay, and uh, I, I think I forwarded you a short write-up that uh, Sebastian um, I guess sent me about what he's done so far on Swarm. Mm -hmm. Did you mm -hmm. take that? So, yep. what? Just to your first reaction. Well, I guess when I, I hand this over to Sebastian, you know, Sebastian, what would you like to ask first? What? What? Oh. what I wrote like about 10 questions while, while David was talking. So I think we'll, I'll have to take some of that offline because it will take way too long to go through that. But um, uh, just to focus on the game of Swarm and what David has, has talked about with Blondie24, I think one, one key characteristic that I think really interesting that I definitely want to bring to Swarm is the fact that most machine learning algorithms um, have so far or for most of them I've stopped to actually do the training portion like um, David described and go test it out and I think uh, one unique feature I would like to, uh, to to put into Swarm actually to the, the idea of continuous learning so that you actually never stop um, refining uh, your skills and learn new tricks because I think that the with the duality you express, David, with, you know, I'll say competitive evolution or co-evolution, where you have basically the, the system fighting itself and trying to fight the, the fittest out of all the generations, uh, I think there's also some value to actually see from the human perspective, uh, because in playing a human and trying to learn from those human behaviors, and especially for the purpose of Justin here, which is that what would I want to play a game where I'm going to get, that's a new strategy game, new board game, um, and get beaten all the time by the computer if it's really that, that good. There's no fun into it. So I think one of the, the key things I want to bring to Swarm uh, is to actually look at uh, a, f a fitness uh, of an AI based on really how fun or how, uh, how much fun the user actually having playing it. And that will extend more when Swarm becomes a, more than just a two-player game and we have multiple 
play your game on different boards or even when you actually play you know over a network so you can actually um, capture more logs of what people are doing and what they judge to be you know a, a fun game that's one thing i realized really early uh, in, in, in building the AI, I'm, I'm just really at the baby steps here compared to what David has described. You know, he has described the top of the line, shiny sports car AI uh, versus uh, versus the baby steps I'm, I'm trying to make here with um, with pretty restrictive settings um, due to the platform itself. Hey, so, uh, I, uh, Sebastian, let me just jump in one second here. I just I forgot to point something out, um, which I think so for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with uh, the game of Swarm, this is a game that Justin developed that sort of a cross between chess checkers and go um, that Sebastian is work helping Justin with um, specifically on developing the AI for Swarm and if you want you can go to swarmsg.com and watch a uh, screencast that Justin put up about how to actually play the game and it's currently available on the iPad so I just thought it'd be important to point that out in case anyone was doing the podcast and also I think it was episode 51 Sebastian where we first had you on the show and we talked a lot about your thoughts on the Swarm SGI, uh, SG um, AI. So uh, those two things would be um, almost sort of prerequisites, I guess, to the rest of this uh, uh, podcast. It, you know, there's one other thing also, which is that um, what the the big challenge that Swarm presents is because every turn you can move up to twelve pieces, and also you can move your opponent's pieces. So you have the potential of twenty two pieces to move uh, per per go. Of, of, of your turn so the search space is rather large and that's another difficulty of the game right and, and so before we get too far into the nuts and bolts which i think we're just about to do um sebastian uh, david i'd just like to ask you what is your reaction um to your first look at the swarm game and to the applicability of some of the methods that you have experience with yeah you know it's funny i get to see a lot of different new games and Oftentimes I think, okay, that's just this old game that's rehashed into this new game. But this is actually not a, not a rehash to me. This is a very inventive, creative um, new game with a lot of different varieties that I can imagine off of it. Some of them uh, being described at that SwarmSG.com site. And I really like it. I... Um, it it almost makes me want to go buy an iPad. It's uh, it's, it's 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 really quite compelling, um, and I think that there's a lot of the of the mix of different AI techniques that will be helpful to generating uh, not just good good opponents for people, but also, uh, as Sebastian pointed out, uh, fun opponents for people because that's that's really what you need in order to have people get hooked. So I'm I'm uh, I'm greatly looking forward to this conversation. So the, one, of the, one of the concerns that, I guess the big challenges of the game, or developing an AI for the game, is the massive search space. The fact that you can do so many things. You can move so many of your own pieces, the other opponent's pieces. Um, there's a stochastic element in which you roll the dice, which determines mm-hmm. how many moves you have. You can move pieces off, move score points by moving your pieces off the board, by capturing the opponent's pieces, things like that. So with this just absolutely massive search space, it seems that really works against... Um, methods like um, evolutionary search because it's so big. I mean, is it is that not necessarily true, or are there just different ways you need to think about the problem to sort of prune it down? I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, Jason, I, I, uh, I, I, I like to say, for, yeah, for, before David here, I think that sure. the I think the technique here of Blondie could definitely be applied to Swarm. I don't reading through uh, David's paper. I don't see why it couldn't be applied. There's some adjustments we need to make uh, because, like you just say, with the other factors. But I think it can be applied. Now, the the question I think is wasn't the critical thing I want to say before I give back to you, David, is that the for many board games, the the board uh, state 
can actually be uh, almost ranked and say, oh, that's a good, that's a good situation here. I'm, I'm going to win because looking at the situation of the board, you can find this for many players that play checker or chess, they look over and they know already who is winning. Yep. Right. Um, however, for Swarm, the, the critical fact that uh, Justin mentioned is that you can move the piece of the opponents and you have a factor of moving costs. So one thing that might look as a good position um, uh, from from if it's a wide playing, it might actually not be as bad if you're the bat. So you see what I mean? Because you can actually move and shuffle around quickly the situation on the board. So uh, th- I think that's one of the key elements to Swarm. What is actually going very fun to play because if you get a good uh, dice move, you can really change completely around the, the odds here and somebody that was about to circle one piece and make a take can turn out to be a, a trap for that piece instead and get taken as a, as a result. So, Right. And I'd just like to point out that I was one who first point, came up with the idea of applying your methods, David, to Justin's game. So I know Justin's like really brilliant, creative for creating a game, but I actually came up with that idea. So I thank you. All right, all right, everybody, just a little credit for this. <laughs> Check back in like I don't know, episode twenty or twenty-five or something. No, anyway, I, I, yeah, I, I, when, when Justin first told me about the game, I thought, yeah, first thing I thought is Blondie twenty-four. I'm like, you got to read Blondie twenty-four. This is this would be the approach, and it just it, it is such a cool idea, and it would be awesome to try it. But it, it did seem just by the adding in the stochastic element that doesn't exist in checkers um, just seemed to make the search space so massive that, you know, it, it almost made it kind of daunting. So, yeah, I'd be very curious what your, what your thoughts are on that. I think that there's different, um, there are imp- different implications when you have massively large search spaces. A lot of things that we work on for Department of Defense applications, let's say you're doing a tank simulation, you have five tanks against five other tanks, what can they do? Well, they can pretty much do anything. I mean, there's almost an infinite number of things that they can do. The, the, the trick is to kind of think about the things that are reasonable to do, and, and that, can eat, that can be a large search space too. But if you can have an evolution that searches through the tree in an intelligent way, you can have certainly an opportunity to miss things that you wished you hadn't missed, but you can actually learn how to search the tree while you're searching the tree. So it's entirely possible to take a tree with a branching factor of 300, let's just say around that for go, right? 19 by 19 to start with, um, or bigger, and not have to evaluate all possibilities as is typically done in a chess or a checkers case where you've got a branching factor of seven or a branching factor of about 50 on average for checkers and chess. Um, and you know that you have an opportunity to miss things. Um, but by by searching through the things that you can have the time to search through and focusing your attentions on the things that seem to be more promising as you're searching, uh, you can have a better chance, I think, in general, of finding the uh, finding reasonable moves at each moment. Now, the next thing would be in terms of the the level of fun, you know, fun's, fun's in the eye of the beholder. So it depends upon who the, the person is that's playing against having never played a, the game of swarm looking at the demo my guess is i'd be pretty pretty stuck to think about where i'm going to be even two moves you know two dice turns into the future at this point now maybe if i played it a lot i could get better and think at three or four i don't know um who the best expert in swarm is at this point and how many or how they think about the game and how many moves ahead they might think but my guess is they may not think too many moves into the future at all um they may think more for position or certain patterns that they want to try to to play up and have a probably a belief that some are better than others and maybe some of those beliefs are right and some of them might be erroneous um i think all those things in terms of 
online continual learning of pattern recognition, what moves are associated with good outcomes and bad outcomes. That gets back to a little bit of credit assignment, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. I'm just saying it's not necessarily a, a necessary thing in a game like this. I think all those things go into saying, you know, just because you're staring out at some vast universe of possible moves doesn't mean that you can't start to evolve some reasonable moves to make at the time at the current time. Yeah, I mean that's that's clearly you know the 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 problem here is to exploit the structure of the game to only evaluate a portion of the search space that we believe is relevant. And uh, actually, that's at the point where right now I am with AI, where I got the structure in place. We had to rewrite the board state mechanism because the current game that Justin had built was actually not with the thinking that you know an AI could actually run the board state and moves by itself. So I had to do that initially and kind of do a lot of plumbing, if I might say, on that end. And uh, so now I got the, the tree search going, uh, and and I'm I'm basically trying to hint which which move out of the gigantic space of you know every single simulation could I just should I just really look at first and that's that's already given some much better results than than a complete random search which just like I say just completely random you will sometimes make an awesome move with five moves in a row to take a piece currently or sometimes it just move things randomly because he doesn't know what it's doing so uh, hinting the search in uh, during the tree search is critical and uh, that's really the target here to get the engine also as well a network version be able to get the AIs to play against each other just like David did with, with Blondie and uh, I would correlate what he said that you know we will be able to learn features of you know uh, look at the properties of each piece on the board at each time and try to find out if there is any kind of metric that can uh, that we can evolve uh, over time by playing thousands of games to see which move are actually more uh, interesting to uh, to look into or simulate instead of just looking at, other, at others. So, I think another thing you might want to think about there, Sebastian, is if you have um, in the in the tree, maybe you can have pattern recognizers that would um, say yes, take this branch and explore it further, or no, don't bother, and. It, to the extent that they're right, it'll help you in limiting that tree search. And of course, to some extent, if you want to have that be part of the learning mechanism, then much of the time in the beginning, they'll be wrong and they'll be telling you to limit things that you should be looking at and wasting a lot of time exploring things that you shouldn't be looking at. But it seems to me that's the kind of thing in a game like this where you could take a look at where you are and say, do I even want to bother evaluating this further? And have some other decision tree mechanism or neural net or a fuzzy logic or whatever sort of um, representation would be appropriate as you think about it um, to make that decision at that particular point is this worth exploring further or is this not worth exploring further the thing that confuses me is if there is something you know in excess of 20 million outcomes per turn how how can this, the the ai do anything? How can it make any sense out of that? That's the part that I'm not really understanding. Well, one thing I, I'll tell you, Justin, is that a trait that Swarm is actually sharing with Go, I think, is the, the locality. Meaning that in the moves, you'll find out that everything happens around neighborhoods. And I don't know if it applies to Checker or Chess directly, but Swarm has a kind of a larger board and will have probably even larger boards in the future. But when you move a piece on the board uh, to try to evaluate all the moves, you want to try to see, okay, can, should I, I should evaluate first things in that neighborhood because I'm going to take a piece. It has to be in the same neighborhood, pretty much, of where actually I move that first piece. So there is that cuts you know quite a bit on on the number of um, 
of options to evaluate at that turn. So you kind of restrict your search from that from that first branch move you simulate to the neighborhood where you're actually going to see if there's anything there that is actually can happen. Um, so I think that that's one first characteristic. For, but for example, as, as a player of Swarm, um, one of the things that I tend to do is to spread out my pieces. I'm thinking the same so, thing, yep. So that I don't get captured. So how does it how does the locality fit into something like that? Um, well, we'll look into well, that's actually another trait of the of the reward, right? I mean, if uh, we're looking at uh, exploring, uh, well, I, I guess there's two 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 thinking. There's the thinking of the version we're going to release on the iPad itself, which is going to have you know limited resources in terms of computing power to be able to do some of that stuff, versus uh, something we'll actually run separately, you know, uh, on a server or something else. So that's kind of two two answers for that question, Justin. But the the one thing. Uh, is to actually be able to to program or you know hint the the AI initially manually or just to like David hinted to actually do it uh, through you know looking at at those properties that the AI will actually extract over time by playing so many games saying you know what if I keep my pieces together I'm most likely to lose so it's probably just better to get you know uh, to look at that trait and get the pieces to spread each other so you could even have a, a training session for itself sort of like going to the shooting range or whatever you you know practicing tennis serves or whatever where you would say okay for given formations of white what is the maximally hard formation for black to make white have the the least chance of being able to uh, capture a piece let's just say That's and right. and so that could be one of the factors that you would put into the the set of terms, if we're just trying to design something that is an AI that works at any level that's reasonable to begin with and not, not prove a point about what evolution can do, and just say, okay, we're going to evolve or learn whatever the, the technique is, how to make things maximally difficult in terms of being taken for a piece. And that would be one parameter that you would have in your objective function. Another one might be how good can I attack somebody else? Can I move my piece into the green zone at the end of the board? Can I capture the queen that's obviously important um and all of those factors can be can be written up the question is then can you measure the degree of success on each of those factors you have sort of as my dad would have called it evaluated state space state space of different values that's in a hierarchic structure and that can be aggregated in a, in a method to give you an overall feeling that this board is better than some other board that's right. Well, one thing that uh, I remember here, uh, let's see who it was. I think it was Peter Stone explained to me. And I think, um, David, you actually know Peter Stone. He's I, do the, know, I do know Peter, yeah. Yeah, he was a professor. He's a professor of, uh, I think he's an associate professor of, of computer science or artificial intelligence down at uh, UT Austin. Right. And yeah, Peter and I played, uh, we were, played soccer together in college. And he was the one who got me interested in machine learning. And one thing he explained to me about the robotic soccer stuff that he was working on is that they would do these sort of, like you said, training sessions where you might, just like in soccer or tennis or something, you would work on one thing. So you would limit the board down maybe into a much smaller board, and you just work on some aspect that you're trying to train, and then you bootstrap your way up from there. Mm -hmm. Now, is that kind of what you're thinking, David, that you, you, could, sort of, you could sort of call it down to more basics um, and just try and develop... Uh, certain uh, certain types of expertise, mobility, uh, capture, uh, the ability to capture things, ability to move off the board, understanding about getting points moving off a board or something like that? I do think that that's a reasonable approach for a game like this where I'm, I'm looking at it as, as a uh, complete novice and um, 
thinking that I, I would like to be able to play at some level of uh, competency that is somewhere up the learning curve as fast as possible as opposed to saying something is like the, the best way to go about learning to be the best player in the long run. Um, but to try to get something that is a useful artificial intelligence that's fun for someone to play against as a computer program, I do think that that's a good way to go. Yeah, because a lo- the lucky thing is, is there are not going to be very many good Swarm players out there. So mm-hmm. at least for the first you know, six months or year of the program, it's going to take people a while to become good at it. So you mm-hmm. probably don't have to have that strong of an AI for it to be useful to most new players. Right, right, right. Um, and uh, Sebastian, do you have any more technical questions you want to ask? Or like, because the one thing you were talking about, uh, Sebastian, where some you had this Monte Carlo tree search was a method you were ex- uh, exploring, and you'd also um, uh, expressed some interest in uh, support vector machines as a possibility. Um, yeah, actually, that's that's two questions I have for David here. I have uh, the first question is in regards to uh, general game playing because. Th- the whole thing you described during the first uh, half of the show here uh, just reminds me so much of the the land I discovered that I've been thinking for years, actually, uh, probably 10 years uh, of exactly that same concept, just giving an AI any game and see if it can work it out, learn it on its own and become an expert. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I recently went to the AAAI conference um, that just happened last, last month in July in Atlanta and discovered this very tiny community of general game players where they have tournaments. And that comes to a side note I want you to address at some point, which is that the AI community is so smart, but everybody is working in their own cubicle, like completely segmented. And I can see so many opportunities by just getting people to talk to each other because some are just very specialized and trying to solve some problems and they do it in a, amazing way just invent great stuff but they never really like you said they just do it and then you have to look at it five years later somebody finally reads their paper and tries to apply it there's actually no when actually things were actually done more in concert with each other from all the different disciplines of ai i think would go a lot a lot faster uh so that's just a side note here but the the general game playing community is exactly what you describe and what i'm excited about which is to uh, you actually have a, a general game uh, language description, so the G language description, the GDL, uh, which allows you to describe any game. So uh, actually, there's a website called General Game Playing. Uh, I think it's .com or .com where you can go and play basically even a human you can play over 200 different games that are commonly random from you know checkers to chess to variations of checkers or tic-tac-toe or you name it you know uh, and and those are, so there's basically online algorithms or AI that are just playing continuously on there getting handed new games they've never played before and from the game from the game description they get they get uh, they are. They have to learn how to play it, and they have an initial 90 seconds, I believe, as a standard to learn how to play the game on their own. And after that, the game master, which is a server, starts to uh, ask them to make their move, and they have about 30 seconds. So it varies depending on the game, and it's about the, the general feeling. So, but what you described is exactly this: to build an AI that can actually play any game uh, just by giving a simple description of the rules of the game like you would actually do a human so from what you've done with Blondie 24 or 25 I could see a great project here which would be to apply this to general game playing because as I've learned from 
uh, the world champions, if I might say, in the field uh, when I was at a conference, uh, they, there has been no neuronets. I mean, there was one attempt from neuronets uh, in the past four years since it's been started, uh, that competition in kind of the whole little group. And uh, everything right now is revolving around Monte Carlo tree search. That's, that's all they use pretty much uh, with a lot of variants and you know, flavors, things that they add back and forth from other disciplines. But so far, there's been no really uh, classifier or things like Neonet introduced to it, or even probably your, your original concept of Blade 24 to try to apply it to the general game playing. So I would be really excited to see how that would actually uh, shake out. All right, I would too. I think part of, the, um, part of the issue there becomes, again, the amount of time that they give you in the competition to be able to do that. And then, you know, evolution, as it's often said, is embarrassingly parallel. If you come in with the right hardware architecture for it, you're going to do a lot better off than if you come in with a single core, you know, three gigahertz machine. So there are certain, there are certain algorithms that are better for computers that you can easily port to Atlanta. Or well, actually, the, the, to, the, yeah. the competition was taking care of there, but the, the actual hardware was not there. So Okay, they were doing it over the internet? They were remote. I mean, you know, so some, I, I, they told me one year they were running the entire uh, department of Wayne University to actually was over 200 network computers to uh, to try to get that. And actually, they told me that sure. it, didn't, it didn't do any difference, what they, which was interesting. They said learning algorithms and... Uh, and massive computing power didn't help. They said at the end of the day, it was a more refined Monte Carlo tree search. And they, if you look at the paper that were released this year at, the, at that conference, you will see they have lots of really clever technique of recall, of you know, uh, sniffing or allocating points. I mean, all that kind of stuff, which is uh, really interesting to see all the different technique and how actually by playing, if they usually use checkers or other standards, they actually are getting better and better. However, they, they agree at the general game playing level that they are not going to be as good as a dedicated player like an expert that would only do check or only do checkers but the right. goal here is not to do that is to build a good enough player by just giving a simple description sebastian when you were talking to them if i remember correctly you explained to them about swarm and am i right in thinking that they said that that the gdl couldn't describe swarm they would actually have to alter that language to be able to describe it well, actually, the, the, the GDL was just upgraded to version 2 um, in the past few months, and I met actually the, um, uh, the author of actually maintaining the GDL, and uh, I'm going to be probably working with him, I would say, probably this fall, contacting him to try to get Swarm described in that, that newer version, which is kind of all fresh, and introduce probably Swarm to the general game playing servers so that they can actually, you know, take their AI and try to go at it to see if they can actually uh, do a good job with Swarm. They were really excited because, like I said, Go is kind of the, the the massive one in the field where there are just so many different possibilities that the general game playing without any you know di- uh, original knowledge about the game it's really difficult to uh, to actually make um, uh, a good player so uh, so i'm looking forward to to get them involved uh, in that process so that once they're involved you know, really the, the the good news is that for us we'll get to to, to have a bunch of different algorithms trying to uh, to compete over Swarm and see which one actually works the best. So, Sebastian, why don't you break in real quick and just give us a, a real quick explanation of what Monte Carlo Tree Search is, because I'm not sure a lot of our listeners would have any familiarity with it. Okay, well, Monte Carlo Tree Search is actually a pretty simple process. It has a fancy name for something pretty simple, which is that you are trying to uh, explore a, a tree or a search 
a church tree that's very very large and uh, you just have to explore a new portion of it and you have to uh, to basically so you have a, a a few different steps which is uh, to try to select which search you're going to try to simulate to a certain depth and then once you agree that that particular simulation uh, is is you're going to try to explore it you actually play the entire game uh, from that point on to the end of the game and try to see the reward so but again there's a lot of variants of how you use it but that's kind of the general feeling where you actually explore what you're going to simulate run the simulation down to a way to the end and and then you back propagate that results back to the original move you made to say hey if i make that move i have one simulation that tells me i'm going to lose and you just repeat that over and over and over and over until you actually get a, a good sample, a good statistic sample of explorations in all the different moves uh, possible. So you can say that one is actually more beneficial to you as a player versus the opponent. That's the general. I hope it's a good enough description, David. Yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit of reinforcement learning. Is that is the, is that right? Am I right about that, David? I mean, because reinforcement learning, you 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 don't know what the result is going to be until you go through the series of moves. You find out what the result is, and then you propagate back some reward or penalty based on the ultimate success, right? Except that in reinforcement learning, you're changing the parameters as a, of some structure as a function of what you think that reward is, whether it's the value of the state that you assign to it or it's an end state to the game. In this case, typically it's an evaluation function that's generally fixed it doesn't have to be but generally fixed in time as you're exploring through that tree and you're you're doing as sebastian said taking a number of monte carlo approaches through that tree um, but it has been already very effective uh, making strides in go even at the full 19 by 19 game and certainly in the nine by nine game i was uh, i had the good fortune to be at the um IEEE Fuzzy Systems Conference in 2009 at Jeju Island in Korea. They were having a human-computer Go competition, and um, some of the best success from the computer Go programs were definitely based on the Monte Carlo tree search. I was speaking with some of the guys there about incorporating evolution into that Monte Carlo tree search, which I, I do think is an interesting next step. Instead of just taking random paths through the tree, take directed paths through the tree. And, of course, some of them will be wrong, but hopefully more of them will be right. So I think there's there's some enhancement to, to make to it, but uh, as Sebastian said, it's a very simple and elegant idea. So now, uh, Sebastian, another idea, or at least a technique you were talking about, was uh, support vector machines, right? Now that's that's become a really big deal in machine learning over the past, I don't know, uh, five to ten years, right? Um, and it seems to be that it's taking up some of the um, mind share away from, say, work in neural nets um, as, as being like a more sophisticated method or something. And David, David, what's your you know what's your uh, feeling about support vector machines and when and when and where they're more valuable I think again it depends upon what you're trying to achieve from a classification problem so if you think about trying to separate out or partition out some sets of data according to where you can find maximally partitionable support it's a little hard to say these technical terms without uh, making them you know too technical but um Actually, even Wikipedia, which I don't usually recommend, has a pretty good uh, overview of, of SVMs or support vector machines to, to think about it. I think it's a very simple way about going about proportioning out um, 
patterns in data. The question really is, once you've done that, are they really the patterns that you're interested in? Are the things that maximize, say, the square difference or some other uh, sort of what we call a norm uh, in that space that you're looking at in the data, is that really what you're interested in? Or are there things about the patterns that maybe aren't uh, associated with squared errors or, or other related errors? So let, I'll just give you an example of that. If you're, if you're in a, a marketing problem. And um, on my desk here, I see a stapler. So we'll talk about staplers. If I if I make a prediction for you, you're making the stapler that there are going to be people lining up to buy a thousand of these things. And so you actually make a thousand of them. And uh, and actually a thousand people do, then you're very happy. But if only one person shows up, you're, you're quite unhappy because you have 999 staplers that you have to go put in a warehouse. If I say only one person is going to want to buy your stapler and you come up and you make one stapler, it's probably pretty expensive because you only made one of it. And then a thousand people come up, you look at me and say, well, you know, I missed this opportunity to sell another 999 staplers. But in space, in an XY space, they're both 999 units apart. Each of those errors are 999 units wrong. One has you holding 999 staplers. The other has a missed opportunity of selling 999 staplers. To you as a business, they're totally different errors, and they have completely different costs. And it's oftentimes difficult to get those sorts of costs into structures like an SVM in, a, in an elegant way. People who've worked with SVMs a long time can try to manipulate them and, and and feel comfortable with them. But I have to say, I feel personally more comfortable working with other data structures, whether they're neural nets or fuzzy systems or decision trees or many other things that I would tend to use before jumping onto the onto an SVM. So I think it's more a function of my own experience and other people um, have their own experience. I remember this is very analogous to when simulated annealing was um, coming to the fore in the 1980s. There was a very famous paper that was published in 1983 in the journal Science that kind of brought it back to the to the fore just around the time that evolutionary algorithms were coming back and neural nets were coming back. And people would often talk about annealing being better than evolution or evolution being better than annealing or neural nets being better than evolution, which I thought always just missed the point because oftentimes it's what you're familiar with that you start to learn how to manipulate that set of tools to do what you want to do. And if you're not that familiar with it, then it takes a long time for you to maybe unlearn the things that you are familiar with and come back to a new set of tools. So uh, it hasn't been my experience that I, I tend to drift towards the SVMs first. I tend not to drift towards support vector machines first, but certainly if they, if their problem is simply to partition data in a very uh, quick way to classify two or more different things, they can give you a very good first order cut, and then you can see whether or not that's sufficient for your problem. But I think in the things that I've looked at in terms of pattern recognition, you get back to breast cancer, right? Saying someone has cancer and having that be wrong is not the same thing as saying that they don't have cancer and getting that wrong. And it's oftentimes difficult to get those those sorts of payoff functions into the separation that the support vectors are, are trying to do. On the SVM approach, actually, that's what was one of my questions to David to see and to see if if he had to to redo Blondie twenty four with all the uh, buzz around SVM and, and newer type of algorithms, even the one actually that run now on, like we talked about in, in uh, show 51 uh, regarding um, graphical cars acceleration where you can actually run the algorithm on the many, many cores of your uh, computer graphic card to accelerate uh, yep. greatly the speed. You know, uh, probably Blondie 24 could be uh, trained in, in a fraction of, of a few minutes, I would assume, now with, with, with all the, uh, the advancements. Um, 
in computing, but also what has been done in terms of optimization of, of, of the SVM algorithm. But one thing I, before you answer, David, one thing I found about SVM is that uh, it's usually very good at, even if you don't use it at the end of the final classifying method, it's really very good at trying to, if you have to explore, uh, I would say, thousands of features and you have no idea which one are related or are going to make a difference. It's really, really good actually sniffing which one are actually the one you should be focusing on. Sure. Whereas yeah. a neural net usually with very large number of inputs is very, very difficult. You have to have a very large set of data to be able to find out which one of those are actually going to be relevant. So usually uh, SVM is very good on anything that's usually for textual analysis and has been very, very successful. Again, any of the papers this year related to textual analysis, language processing, sentiment analysis, all that stuff is actually using SVM because it's very successful uh, by, you know, inputting trigram, bigrams. But I found out that SVM is like a, like a nice Swiss Army knife that actually works, like you said, when you don't have something too complex. But I also found out it's a good primer to kind of weed out the properties that, you know, actually don't make any, are just noise in your data uh, initially. And then you can pull up the big guns with like a neural net based on those one and see how it fares and, 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 and select the right propagation and layers for your problem. So. Yeah, fair enough. And I, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm reminded one of my colleagues, um, Professor Simon Lucas, who's uh, the editor-in-chief of the IEEE's Journal on Computational Intelligence and uh, AI and Games. He makes the point to me routinely when we, when we talk that SVMs are, are basically close cousins, if not equivalent in some cases, to, to neural nets. SVM with a sigmoid journal is basically a, a two-layer perceptron neural net, right? So, um, I think again, it depends upon the framework that you approach the particular data problem that you're that you're looking at and what your own set of familiarities are. I, 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 not to get off topic, but I mean, people ask me the same thing too in terms of how would I do an evolutionary algorithm on a particular problem, and it's often the case, for example, for me that I try to let the representation come to me from the problem this description as opposed to try to fit a representation to the problem. A lot of people I know who've worked in genetic algorithms, let's say for a long time, try to either still fit a binary string to a particular problem or try to look for ways that crossover might be effective in generating solutions. And I generally tend to look at things from sort of the opposite perspective of what is the representation that seems natural to me and then what are the variation operators that seem natural to me for that representation. And then if I need to think about something else because it's clear that I didn't understand the problem well enough because my solutions aren't working well enough to think about other things. So, you know, the tools are all there. I guess it's just a question of what, what order you use them in, which ones do you reach for first? That's right. Uh, now, the, my, my second question would be that from the experience you, you've had with Blondie 24 and 25, what, what would you say, did, did this pretty much lay out your framework of, uh, of thinking and the way to approach many of the problems uh, down the road, you mentioned briefly that you actually, you know, were most successful in other areas after that, so you don't have as much time to, to spend on the game, which I guess there's not really much money into the game business, right, to, to prove you're the best player, usually don't, uh, don't, can really generate income from that, but so is it really, is it really, was it a breakthrough for you to be able to apply it to that problem being successful, getting recognition, and then just say, now I can just apply that same type of framework to other problems and be successful the same way? You know, there's multiple multiple questions there, which is all all good. I don't want to I don't want to drop any of them, but I have to say one thing, which is that um, I've been very fortunate in working in in industry, basically working for myself or working for other defense contractors, as opposed to being in academia. I've taught I've taught classes, but I've never been on a tenure track position, for example, at a university. Um, to be very free to publish pretty much whatever I wanted. 
um, and hope that it would be interesting to somebody. And I would say along the way, um, in you know, in two decades plus, I've, I've published over 200 different articles here and there, whether they're journal papers or conference papers or book chapters or books or whatever. But easily 90% of those things were never funded by anybody. They're just things that I found personally interesting and spent my own time either by myself or with somebody else who wanted to uh, encourage me or, or thought it was interesting too. Um, and I would encourage anybody listening, you know, whether there's funding for something or not, one of the things uh, that I always say is don't wait for people to fund your good ideas. Just go do them, and uh, especially if you enjoy them. You know, go, go try them out and see if they work, and, and then, uh, you know, it's up to you to let, let other people know about them or keep them to yourselves. But um, but I, I would say, you know, the, the things that have occupied time have been things that we feel are, are important. So um, things that are helping discover new drugs or do um, – do basic medical research that can help people find new drugs faster or find treatments that will be more effective, let's say, for different cancer treatments, depending upon what type of cancer somebody has, or screening things that are coming into the country, or looking at, um, at different models for industry to get products to people faster, more reliably. You know, all of those things are important, too. So while I I certainly had the compulsion at the time with Blondie to say, no, I I need to... I need to do this to prove a point, either to myself that it couldn't be done or to everybody else uh, at some level that it could be done. I think what I, what I get the most enjoyment out of now is, is seeing other people um, take those ideas and explore them further. Um, there's, there's been work done out of uh, Singapore, in, in um, England, in the United States, in Florida. For example, Ken Stanley at University of Central Florida has done a lot of work extending um, evolving topologies in neural networks, uh, also using evolution. And part of that work was done at uh, at University of Austin, too, with Risto Mikulainen, who's one of Peter Stone's colleagues there as a professor. So, you know, I, I enjoy... I, I really enjoy seeing a paper published that says we compared our results to Fogel and so-and-so and we beat those results and here's the new results and here's how we did it. And if, uh, if Blondie 24 and 25 and that kind of stuff can serve as inspiration for people to go uh, try those things out, then I think that's, that's super. One thing uh, David mentioned earlier was like, you know, machine learning is easy now versus back then when we had the 400 megahertz processor. And uh, I'm interested to see him expand on that because my take on it is that uh, no matter how fast we can, you know, uh, increase our computing capacity, uh, there's always be problems that are going to require us to pull up our sleeves and think about it before we start to just throw it, you know, dumbly to the machine to think that it can actually pick up the pattern for us. Uh, and actually, it's one of, the, one of the great breakthrough I had at the AAA conference was actually lots of great speakers. And, and one of the things that was the most inspirational for the first time for me was to say, you know, there's a lot of NP-complete problems out there, but, you know, the good chance is that there's probably a backdoor to it and probably only 14 or 20 variables matter in an entire to actually get uh, to, you know, even 90% or 95% optimum solution. And really, we don't have to look for the to, you know, universal optimum solution for those problems. We just have to look for one that's good enough that we're ready to live with. And, uh, and I think that was really eye-opening. And even with, so now coming back to the question regarding machine learning is that uh, we're about in the same boat here. You know, there's problems that are, you know, greatly more complex than we can process. And it's just all about exploiting the structure of the problem. So do you feel the same way, David? You know, it's funny because as you're saying that, I made a little note to myself that, um, 
in some way, I guess this is just a first opinion, so I'd hold a right to reserve to, uh, to change it, but in some ways, the evolution of the problems that we have, we humans have tried in AI and games have gone from things where thinking about things is critical to things where thinking about things takes a backseat to just hacking and to getting to the point where all the problems that can be really just hacked are kind of on the wayside or not that interesting anymore and we're back to thinking about things. And I, I say that because I remember going back to like my dad's machines that would run on punch cards and, and paper tapes and magnetic tapes where you, you lit, literally, if you wanted to play uh, one of those simple Hammurabi games that were back in the late 1960s, early 70s, it would take 45 minutes to load off of a cassette tape that you push play on. So you, you say, you know, I want to play Hammurabi. 45 minutes from now, you can play, but, you know, not right now. And if you're doing something that's an evolutionary algorithm or, or something that's any bit complex about a game like, let's say, checkers or chess or even tic-tac-toe, you, you really have to think about what structure you want to run because it's just so error-prone, right? Even when we're doing our own programming now and think about debugging tools you have, they're just outstanding debugging tools compared to what was going on in the 1960s and 70s and 50s when Arthur Samuel was doing his checkers work or other people were doing chess programs. I mean, it, it would be easy to think about running a program, having it go overnight, coming back the next morning and finding the system administrator telling you, well, it didn't work, it died, and here's your here's your output, and then the output says that you had error number nine. Okay, so you know, what's error number nine? And the guy hands you this huge book of, of uh, input-output type you know, stuff for the VAX 11 750 or whatever, you know, VAX 11 750 is a 1980s computer, 11, uh, IBM 7090 machine, and, and then you have to go look it up and it says, oh, you had an input-output error, and then that's all you get. So you really have to think about how do you want to spend this critically important time on a computer to do what experiment and get it right. Then as computers get to be, okay, they're on your desk and you can do pretty much what you want and they're a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand times faster than that, you, those problems kind of go away. You hack something, oh, that didn't work, I'll try something else. And you just keep trying it until until it works. But then, you know, after you've done the truck backer upper and you've done the cart pole problem and you've done the Fisher Iris data and you've done all the other traditional sorts of things for machine learning data sets that were hard at one time but really aren't that tough anymore, it gets back to thinking about, well, how can I tackle this problem from a really different way? Um, and it's not so much the machine power at that point it's it's your brain power and thinking about it but i think that gets back to how can we ultimately use computers to assist us in that creativity and that that to me is part of the holy grail of what we would want to work on um and of course there there are no obvious solutions to that otherwise we'd we'd all be we'd all be done so uh, David, I have a question for you uh, about uh, sort of on the startup from a startup perspective. You know, you didn't follow the academic route and try and gain tenure, I guess, and you went off and just decided to start a consulting uh, firm with your dad. I mean, right. how did that? How did you make that choice, and how has that worked out for you? Well, I wouldn't have done it any other way. In retrospect, it was it was great for so many different reasons. Um, many of them, you know, personal. I, I got to work with my dad for what was it, 20, 25 years or so. Um, my brother started working with us in 1998 after he finished his PhD. Actually, my mom is the owner of Natural Selection, and she's worked at the company. She was here today. In fact, she does all of the payroll and the financial work and contracts and things like that. Not part of her training as a nurse back in the <laughs> old days, but she learned as she, as she went. Um, so it's it, you know it's been just a fantastic opportunity to work in a, in a small company, make close friends, 
um, and and have great relationships with family uh, along the way, and and not so much look at it as an opportunity like most people would in a startup to say, okay, what venture capital money do we need? What's our exit strategy? When do we go IPO? Uh, how do we make a billion dollars, you know, in two months and 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 all that? It was just like, how do we have fun using what we're using to solve people's problems? And you know what, Jason? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not like your normal mom and pop shop, is it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's this sort of this false dichotomy where it's like, you know, either you're trying to start the next Facebook or Google or you're trying to start a laundromat or hair salon. Right. You know, there's a huge spectrum in between, and there's a lot of very interesting companies that um, that don't never IPO, that never take venture funding, which probably the most of companies are, fall into that category, and that um, solve interesting technical problems, and that do make people very financially secure, if not wealthy. And so I think it's, that's sort of we get a sort of myopic view of what a startup is, like oh, you got to give angel funding and VC funding and all this stuff. And I really think that only works for a small subset. Of people in a small subset of of companies, and you know these, uh, just like uh, D- David is describing, you know, you can kind of architect your own um, y- your own path. You say, okay, well, these are the kind of this is what we know. This is the kind of problems we can solve. Let's see if we can go out and find some people that need this problem solved, and we'll just define what our company is going to be. It's not going to you know fall in some cooker, cookie cutter format that other people seem to always want to um, do over and over again. So, and David, so. You, Specifically about natural selection, I mean, how how big of a company is it now? At the biggest, it was 15 employees, and right now it's a little bit under 10, mm-hmm. and it kind of varies depending on how many projects are in the company at any at any one time. And you know, we've had some spinouts of the technology into separate other companies. Uh, Digenetics being one of them. That's an entertainment software uh, company that's been around a little while, and other sort of um, computational linguistics company that's been around a little bit. But you know, basically, um, you know, 15 employees at the at the top, and and beyond that, it gets a little hard to manage. You know, so um, again, the other thing I would say is that a company to me in this particular case because I was able to, to work with my dad and my brother mainly in, on the technical things um, and Bill Porto I, I need to say too because after 20 years he's basically family um, it, it wasn't limited to just the projects that we could work on at the company it was also the things that we could do talking to our other friends who were in academia or in industry and working within the IEEE organization for example once the Neural Networks Council was formed in the late 1980s and started up uh, here in San Diego with conferences on neural networks we took an active role in in that research and published papers there went to the meetings started taking more interest uh in the council when it expanded to fuzzy logic that was about 1992-93 i had the good fortune of being invited to do a guest issue of the ieee transactions on neural nets focusing on evolution and computation that came out in 94 and then that led again to being the founding editor-in-chief of one of their journals which i i think actually this last year had the highest impact factor for five years of any ieee journal maybe even any journal in computer science for the last five years it's just kind of amazing that it's taken off like that and um all the way to the you know from 2008 and uh and 2009 i was president of the ieee's computational intelligence society with 6,000 members pretty much on par now with with triple ai and it's just been been great to be able to participate on that side of things that would normally be what you'd expect on the uh, from participation from the academic side, but because we have our small company and because we've been able to do the things we want to do, we could follow those leads and publish papers and go to meetings and give tutorials and and do all those things too without having um, 
without having to be beholden to, say, the venture capital investment. So would it be true to say that the people who work for you don't always work on money-generating projects? They'll work on a, a bunch of stuff that doesn't necessarily make you any money, but it's just kind of fun. As long as we, as long as we can afford it. Yep, sure. <laughs> so do you, do you find that these side projects, like for instance, your book in particular, um, now has that, I, I, I'd just like to ask, first of all, what gave you the idea to, to write a book um, from something that was, I guess, just an experiment in a paper? And how has that impacted you at all? I mean, is that you know, led to more awareness of natural selection or more contracts? I mean, has that been beneficial for you? Well, I have to say it's, it's affected, it, you know, the recognition's been um, greater than I ever thought it would be, nor did I, you know, have it in mind when I wrote the book. But, um, you know, I wrote, I wrote that book because it's something that comes naturally to me to do. And I had written a book out of my PhD dissertation uh, called Evolution and Computation Towards a New Philosophy of Machine Intelligence. And IEEE Press picked that up and actually is one of the book of the month clubs from the Science Book Club. So, you know, writing, writing Blondie was a, an attempt on my part to reach a larger audience, more of a popular science audience. And, and it was really a very rewarding experience because not only has the idea of co-evolving solutions been picked up by many other people, I mentioned Ken Stanley's work and others um, around the world, but, uh, but also I had an opportunity to go um, describe what we've done to many different public forums, all the way from the Australian National Museum in Canberra to the Edinburgh Public Science Festival last year in Scotland, uh, Boston Museum of Science, New York Hall of Science here in San Diego at the Ruben H. Fleet Space Theater, I mean, all these different places around the world where I've been able to talk to people literally just off the street who happen to be using the museum that day and share with them a demonstration of what Blondie 24 is all about and they can play the program and and have uh, have the feedback from adults and children about you know whether they they get it or they don't get it and those who get it really think it's very cool um, and all the way to receiving an honorary doctorate from the University of uh, of Pretoria in South Africa in 2008 for for that work, which I mean, was just fantastic, you know, to be in that position. So, um, it's uh, it's it's been really great to to meet all of those different types of of audience, which I feel all are important because I think in general, as scientists, we don't do the job that we need to do to relate to people who are not scientists what we're doing uh, and I'd like to continue to work on that as, as we go through things here and I think games are a great vehicle to do that because it's, it's an immediate mechanism of communication that everybody you know, on both sides whether it's a scientist or not and I shouldn't use the word sides but I think you know what I mean um, it, it allows for a communication that's familiar to both sides right off the right off the bat. So um, I think it's a, a great substrate for that sort of communication. Really complex ideas that can be uh, borne down into into simple uh, simple language that people can understand and hopefully understand the impact of. Right. Um, you know, what's funny, interesting is that you know a lot of your success seems to come out uh, come from you taking. Um, paths of sort of non-traditional or unexpected paths, right? I mean, right, you know, this, you know, you're doing contract work for the government and you decided to go, you know, doing medical uh, analysis yep. um, right. and now you go and write a checkers playing algorithm or then you go and write a book and right. that all seems to have fed back and in, in, in created more success than you would have you just stuck to your guns and are stuck to the things that you knew how to do at the time. I, I, uh, I appreciate those who specialize. It's just not for me. It, you know, when, um, 
it's a, it's one of those things where when you need a specialist, you know, if you if you need brain surgery, you want a specialist. Right. You don't want a guy who did a checkers <laughs> program in the weekend, you know. But <laughs> if it, but I have to say the, the the background that I had as a graduate student in the system science group at UCSD really. Um, gave me a great perspective of being able to say, okay, there's inputs, there's outputs, there's stuff in the middle. How does it all relate? And whether it's a breast cancer detection problem or helping a company figure out how to screen hundreds of thousands of drug candidates to find new leads or helping a bus company figure out, you know, how many buses do they need to do this route optimally? At some point, it's inputs and outputs. And I I have had the good fortune of being able to quickly adapt to what the language of the customer is. As we go in, everybody has their own language, and you have to be able to, to you know, address that terminology and learn what it is that's important to them, and then be able to tailor a solution that really does meet what, what their needs are as opposed to what an off-the-shelf uh, piece of software might be able to do. Right. I have, uh, so I have two, I guess we're getting probably towards the end of our uh, time, so I have just two kind of related questions that I'd like to get in. Yeah. Um, one is, um, what do you think of the current uh, state of AI? I mean, it seems like we're, it's picking up steam on the web because a lot of companies are use, have access to all this user data, and they're, and, they're, and they're trying to leverage it to do interesting things with it. I mean, one big example is how Netflix created that big competition for their recommendation engine, and you have companies like Hunch, which are using um, a series of questions answered by their users to find out out, um, you know, things that they can recommend uh, products or services or, or anything else to users. So it just seems like there's getting to be a lot more, um, a lot more stuff going on just because there's access to all this data because the data is, is there. Users generate the data. They do things and, and now all of a sudden you have, you know, gigabytes or terabytes of user data and, you know, the next thing to do is like, okay, well, what, what can we do with this? And there's machine learning is the uh, big answer, it seems like. I think that plus, um, you know, it, there's always been a dichotomy, and I think to some degree I've, I've certainly um, pushed one side of the dichotomy uh, between computational intelligence and artificial intelligence. That is, bio-inspired intelligence on a computer and things that are more like domain-specific knowledge, expert systems, or the traditional structure of AI. And certainly each of them have their own strengths and weaknesses to the extent that that we're trying to solve problems that are um, the emergent properties of human behavior. And we know something about human behavior because there's been a lot of study of psychology and also because there's just a lot of data about it and we can go mine out those data. You know, To me, it's not so much either one or the other approach, but a marriage of computational intelligence and traditional artificial intelligence that can generate some interesting solutions to those sorts of problems, whether they're problems of what do you buy or where do you go or what are you likely to do next in a given situation? So I, I, I really think this is where the, the CI people, the computational intelligence people, and the AI people, who both have those sets of expertise and experiences, um, can do the greatest service by getting together and, and working together. It's not always easy to get us together, I have to say, but, um, but I think that would really be the, Wait, the best what, outcome. What is the difference between AI and computational intelligence? And computational intelligence, is, is that just a synonym for machine learning, or how would well, you... Define yeah, it's, these various terms. It's funny because within um, within AAAI, of course, there's a there's a large emphasis on machine learning, and rightly so, and reinforcement learning. But you don't see too much on neural nets and fuzzy systems and and evolutionary learning 
so much. I mean, there's some. Um, but the, the main, I would say, the main impetus for computational intelligence arising as a, as a field in its own and a term on its own uh, came in the late 1990s when what was the Neural Networks Council was branching out into also doing fuzzy systems, meaning essentially computing with words, right? That words have uh, imprecise meanings. If I say push hard on the brakes, what does hard mean? If I say push with 3.72 newtons on the brakes, you'd look at me and go, what do you mean? Even though I was telling you a very precise answer, you'd look at me and say, what do you mean? If I tell you push hard on the brakes, you know exactly what I mean, even though you might you know, push harder than I would or less hard than I would. So there's a whole branch of computation that looks at how people describe things and then uh, frames that in what we would call computing with words. I have to say some people don't like that term, but fair enough. Some people don't like every term. Um, <laughs> and then also looking to nature for inspiration. So if we look at humans in, in what they do as opposed to the rules for how they do it, or we look at the brain as a mechanism for biological behavior, or if we look at evolution as, let's say, the most ancient form of learning that goes on, everything is evolutionary, essentially. There's a change in state that has some random variation and selection properties to it, whether it's going on inside a brain or going on in a culture or going on within an evolving species. Um, those sorts of bio-inspired techniques uh, form a group of techniques that really stands apart from saying, okay, what's the domain expertise? Well, the domain expertise is that kings are more valuable than uh, regular checkers and that we want to control the center of the board. And here's a pattern that we definitely want to always avoid. So put a plug in for that one. Don't ever see that position again. Give me a lookup table over here. What did that grandmaster do from that game over there? Let's program that in. It's just an entirely different way about going about solving a particular problem. When the domain is very restricted and things stay in that domain, knowing what other people did and programming those things in and getting perfect information about the domain is, ex is extremely uh, efficient. And that's why you can end up with extremely good chess and checkers uh, programs at this point. But when you get a new game like Swarm and there's no expert, then what do you do? You know, you kind of stuck for first principles and beyond first principles again what do you do you have to have something that can try to explore so if you think about the principles of nature that have been around allowing organisms to survive whether those organisms are individuals or species or social groups those are the kind of things that many of us find compelling for mechanisms to emulate to go about doing problem solving and i think where those things overlap is is different forms of machine learning and and the rest of it is i think just you know the politics of science as opposed to the science of science so um different tools again uh, and and each one has its place for for certain problem solving uh, certainly if you can if you can write an expert system that solves the problem i wouldn't want to evolve it um I probably would be more compelled to do a problem, to address a problem for which you couldn't write an expert system. Okay, uh, J Jason and uh, Sebastian, just to let you guys know, I think we're running close to uh, the time to actually close the show. So if you have any last questions, I'd say one, you're allowed one question each. <laughs> okay, I have, I have one question here. It'll be very easy. I'm uh, asking uh, David more about actually the implementation. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, what kind of actually language was used for Blondie uh, 24? And if there's any language that for him stands out uh, to be more effective in the AI community or through his work? You know, there, there really isn't. I think we do all of that in NCC back then, if I remember correctly. Um, a lot of programming now in C Sharp, but um, there's really not. It's prototyping. Some, uh, one of our, one of our um, graduate student... Uh, 
interns here, works a lot in MATLAB for coding things up quickly. I think, again, it's more a matter of familiarity because once you get to something that's going to be a prototype to run on someone else's machine, then you're going to need to do a lot more efficiency to it, uh, put a lot more efficiency into it, and think about how you want to code it most effectively for that particular architecture. So um, I don't really have any any biases about programming languages and you know goodness gracious I, I went to UCSD first for two years back in 1981 so Pascal was the thing there and you know when I I'm actually probably most comfortable still programming in Pascal than even today so uh, you probably don't want me programming anything anyway <laughs> yeah I guess it's just another example of why it's not the shoes it's the player Right. Yeah, it's actually it's the swoosh on the on the shoes, isn't it? Oh, okay, I think. right, right. <laughs> right. I think so. Right. So my last question is: I just uh, you you said your brother is uh, running natural selection. Uh, are you running diagenics or giant diagenics? Digenetics. 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 Is yeah, that so what you're up to, or what are you uh, what are you doing? Thank yeah. you. So my my brother and uh, Bill Porto are, are running natural selection. My brother's background again in biology. He focuses more on the biotech examples of things that we can work on in medical fields and and drug design, new drug discovery. Uh, Bill's background much more on the defense side. So when we have things that we're supporting for homeland security or or other defense related industry projects, that's more in his bailiwick. But uh, for me, for the last few years, I've been working in financial computing and helping generate models of financial markets, and, and then all also working on other industry uh, collaborations, mainly with my brother, um, as they come up for, for natural selection. So that's what's occupied my time for the, for the most part for the last four or five years. And um, as things uh, move ahead here, we'll, we'll keep you posted on, on the, new, uh, the new products that we generate. One final question I have is, uh, since I first uh, learned about neural nets or heard about neural nets, uh, which was actually through the game 20Q. <laughs> I don't know whether you've heard of it. Um, I, I thought that it would that type of neural net would make a great differential diagnosis tool, and I was wondering if you if you kind of think that's that's a good idea, or or is that not a good approach? Well, tell, tell me like what that? you mean by differential diagnosis. Well, where where a doctor may ask you 50 questions mm-hmm. to to ask you about your symptoms mm-hmm. and. and it will then try and come up with some kind of diagnosis. I think. I think it. Okay, that's what I, I thought, but I wanted to make sure before I, I jump to a conclusion. I, I think um, that is a good tool for it. Decision trees are, I would say, a competitive tool for it. And and here's kind of the advantage disadvantages as I see it for both of them. Um, Certainly, my brother and I have worked on neural networks for similar problems, for example, in not just cancer diagnosis, but then suggesting what type of treatment would be appropriate. And there are several cases where if you have the wrong treatment for the different type of cancer, then the effectiveness for the treatment is really not very strong. Um, But if you have the right match for the treatment, then you can have a much better outcome. So you really do want to try to identify what the patterns are that say, you know, it's this type of cancer and not this other type of cancer. And so people can make diagnostic kits or or, uh, software programs that could be marketed. And, of course, then you get to requiring FDA approval for these sorts of things. And this gets to be the point where um, the government steps in and says, well, if you have something that's equivalent to a magic eight ball, telling me that this is cancer type 1, that may not be sufficient for me to approve it, even though you can show me some clinical data that say it's a pretty good magic 8-ball. So if you turn the magic 8-ball over and it says yes, definitely, or it says ask me again later, you know, um, it can't really tell you why it's doing that. Now, on the other hand, if you have a decision tree where you can explicitly write out what the decisions are and have it evolve 
if this, then that sort of conditions where you can read what they are, then somebody else can come along and say, okay, well, I understand now why it's making the decisions that it's making. And because I understand it, I can approve it or I can disapprove it. Um, and you may find that from a practical point of view of getting a product out into the market, you may have a better chance of getting a real product into market when it's understandable, even though it might be that the Magic 8-Ball would do better. It just might not be approvable. So it's, it's, um, it's an interesting trade-off where regulations come in play because, you know, understandably, we probably don't want to live in a country where you can just market your Magic 8-Ball and tell the person that they have type 2 cancer. Um, because you just don't know that you trust their data, right? And, or frankly, trust them. So, you know, there has to be a certain give and take, I think, on those sorts of things. And so for differential diagnosis, when we're talking about humans, uh, that's one thing. When we're talking about differential diagnosis of, let's say, machine health, if you're flying a helicopter and you have something that's monitoring the the um, the parts of that thing, the rotors, the the transmission, and so forth, and you want to say how much life do you think is left in these things, and do I need to get them all replaced, or what things do I need to have replaced the next time the the uh, craft is in the shop, then that's maybe not quite so important to know that it's not a magic eight ball, because as long as it's doing its job, then you know hopefully you don't want to view the pilot as expendable. Having, having 500 hours in airplanes myself, I never want to think of a pilot as being expendable, but it's just not the same sort of thing with the same sort of government oversight. So again, I think it just depends upon what the consequences are of being right or wrong and who has the authority from a practical perspective of uh, saying, okay, I approve you doing this um, and you know, take some of the responsibility for that approval. Uh, David, when, when I, I just like to be very curious, what, what work have you done in the financial markets with machine learning? Well, you know, it gets to a thing where I rapidly can't talk about anything. So, Oh, wow. Um, okay. But I, but I think that the broadest view I can give you are things that we're, we've looked at for making predictions about where markets are headed in different directions um, over different timescales. And those markets could be equities or commodities or foreign exchange. And that's, you know, a very broad class of problems that many people work on from quantitative methods. But right. we've, uh, we've also done many other things in terms of credit scoring and loan migration analysis. Loan migration analysis means if you score loans, let's say um, one is a good loan and nine is a, a subprime mortgage loan that didn't get paid by somebody who had uh, you know no job but got four loans somehow in the in the, right. in the year two thousand seven or whatever. Um, the banks have an interest in figuring out what percentage of those good loans are going to become bad loans and bad loans are going to become good loans. And they'd like to be able to project that ahead in time, um, maybe on a quarterly basis or, or even further into the future. And again, this is one of those things where you can use a traditional statistical approach, some sort of linear regression or nonlinear regression, um, based upon economic factors that you may know or other economists can project for you, like what GDP might be in the future and what inflation rates might be in the future, uh, and make a model that would suggest, based on past migration of ones to threes and threes to sevens and so forth, what you would expect for the future. But again, it gets back to the point of saying if you predict a one and it's actually a one, that's not the same thing as predicting a nine and having it actually be a nine because you're much happier that you correctly predicted the nine so that you could do something right. about it. And it's also the case that if you predict a nine and it's a one, 
you know, you, you got worried for something that really wasn't a problem. If you predict it's a one and it's actually a nine, then you have a complete meltdown of the entire financial market. So right. uh, it's, it's the case where least squared regression, even in a sort of generalized weighted thing, is not necessarily the right answer. And that's the kind of thing where the evolutionary and, and neural nets, even fuzzy logic um, type approaches, can offer a degree of robustness and also can address some problems that traditional methods don't do. So we've done actually quite a wide variety of things in the, in the financial arena. Is, is, are this like stuff under the uh, natural selection umbrella, or is this a whole separate venture that you're working on? Well, it, it's, been a, it's been a whole separate venture. It's been a spin-out. And um, as, as uh, we say, maybe we'll save some information for next time. Great. Okay. Well, uh, Justin, I think that's uh, pretty much it, right? We're about out of time. We, we are. We, we've almost hit two hours. Yeah, we're way over time. This will be about the longest podcast Amazing. in our uh, history. Well, uh, David, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and taking the time to speak with us. It's been a lot of fun and very educational, so I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Hope, hope to do it again sometime with you. And uh, Sebastian, thank you for t- uh, jumping on with us as well. It was, uh, it was fun as always. You're welcome. It's been great. Thank All you right. so much. Appreciate it. Nice meeting with you. All right, guys. That's a wrap. We're out. Okay, here we go. Welcome to episode. (laughs) (laughs) Professional. We are professional grade. (laughs) Okay, sorry. (laughs) The problem is now I'm smiling. I'm not going to get this right. right. Welcome to episode 58 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. And on today's show, we have two very special guests with us. David Fogel, author of Blondie 24, playing at the edge of AI.